A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheimbare Brüder in America. So tausend Schafes at the guitar. Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in heaven. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late. And it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this is um, a long overdue. We had a series uh, way back on the Yeshiva in Valajan. It was an ongoing series and never got around to finishing it. The whole pandemic, uh, the corona started and wanted lighter stuff for a while and Pesach. And then either way, um, so really owe you one. And I want to finish up Valajan. We got we to gotta close up the Yeshiva. We can't leave it open. We have to close it. And it was just Reb Chaim Velazhener's yard site uh, recently. So this is an appropriate time to go ahead and close the yeshiva that he uh, worked so hard to build. Um, and of course, even though it was closed in, a, in the physical sense, but the movement that it spawned, of course, continues till today. So even though the story that we're going to relate is related to the closing of the yeshiva, but Valajan really never closed. The legacy and the uh, the story of Valajan really uh, continues, and that's why it's an important story, uh, one of the reasons. Um, in this uh, stage of the closing of the yeshiva, really, it's um, in any any part of the story of Valajan, and really any part of the story of Lithuanian yeshivas, and especially the 19th century tells in Slabatka, so Shol, uh, Professor Scholl Stempfer's book, The Lithuanian Yeshivas of the, of the 19th Century, is an essential read. But I would say, more than anything else, it's in regards to the chapter on the closing of the, of the Velazhin Yeshiva. It's probably the, the uh, most important or best chapter of the book, and, and it's where he did uh, some of his most original research, where he actually uncovered original documents in Russian archives and deciphered them and was able to shed a lot of new light on the reasons for the closing and really an absolutely amazing job um, what he was able to do. So I highly recommend that everyone um, reads it. And although um, I very often use many sources in the episodes, but over here his book is pretty much the pretty much the only or one of the only ones that that is needed to use. Um, it's so complete 
in how it is, uh, brings out the story. So there's a combination of factors. If we let out, left off in uh, way back, uh, refresh our memories uh, a little bit from uh, part five, uh, we're talking about the Valajan in its golden age and and the different challenges during its golden age of some undercurrents and and movements that was going on in the yeshiva, despite the fact that it was in its golden age, Reb Chaim Brisker was giving his shiurim, and they had some amazing uh, you know, talmidim in the yeshiva, who were the future leaders, Rabbanim and Rashi Yeshiva of the next generation, were studying in the yeshiva at the time, and the yeshiva was flourishing, the size of the yeshiva was large, but um, it's the 1880s, the yeshiva gets closed in 1892. So we're talking about in the years leading up to that closure. So there's a combination of factors that that uh, led to that tragedy. Um, and it has to do with the relationship that the yeshiva has with the Russian czarist government. Um, the yeshiva is in the Vilna district, which is a, 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 there's a governor in Vilna appointed by the czar, who was under the jurisdiction of the czarist officials and the government in St. Petersburg. And the yeshiva always is struggling to have a good relationship with the government. In fact, the uh, the yeshiva would celebrate, they would commemorate the Russian holidays, which were usually related to, um, the ones that were related anyways to the czar and his family, to his coronation, to his birthday, and things like that. I don't think they celebrated anything that was related to the Russian Orthodox Church, as far as I know. But the ones that were related to the Tsar himself, and they would actually invite the local government officials, and they would drink a l'chaim, and they would have uh, some tribute to the Tsar. They always, like, uh, you know, the Jews in the Russian Empire had to, everyone, not only Valazhin, had to try to have as best of a relationship that they could have with the with the government. And um, part of it was making the yeshiva legal. Um, did the yeshiva license? There was the government. Did they recognize the yeshiva? Were they licensed? And um, you know, we know we know that many yeshivas struggled with that issue. Um, for instance, the Mir yeshiva was never legal um, at that point. Later on in Yerushalayim, they were pretty legal, but in in Russia. They were in Poland. They were also legal, but in Russia, they 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 were they were. We have we have. Uh, I recently read um, uh, um, the fact the Mir Yeshiva in the eighteen sixties was was uh, had a correspondence with uh, Russian government officials that they weren't really a yeshiva. They were just local boys learning in a local shul, and it wasn't officially yeshiva. They tried to convince them that it wasn't really yeshiva because they weren't licensed and. To get, to get official recognition and licensing in the Russian Empire for any institution, for any entity, was a really long and complicated process for anyone, especially the Jews, and um, it was a, always a struggle. So the Valazhin Yeshiva, which was licensed, Rabitzala of Valazhin was able to get it in the 1840s, so there was very strong scrutiny of the Tsarist officials on the yeshiva for for decades, really, from the 1820s. You're talking about from even when Reb Chaim Velazhin was alive, perhaps, but for sure, even in the decade following his passing um, and on. And there was many, many attempts in the 1820s, and 1840s, and 1850s, of some serious attempts, 1858, to close the yeshiva in the 1860s, 1870s. 
you're talking about an ongoing process. So the fact that the Russian government came along in, in 1892 and closed it, it was a culmination of a long, 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 long process and didn't come as a, as a totally out of the blue. Um, it was a result of a, a, um, a complicated relationship that they had. And um, and then the the question is is why is the government picking on Volusian so much more than any other place? And so, so the prominence of Volusian has to do with the Russian government's policy towards uh, yeshivas in general, and 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 and, uh, and how they wanted to integrate the Jewish population into the Russian Empire, and it really was a part of a much larger context. And uh, and that's how the issue of secular studies. Or general studies comes into the to the picture. We have to ask a question: Why would the Russian government care or want there to be general studies in the Volozhin Yeshiva? What was the issue that Volozhin had with having general studies? Was it the idea of general studies per se? Was it the idea of general studies in the Yeshiva, or was it the idea that, or was it the idea that the we don't want the government involved. It's not the idea of what, what, what they were saying. It's that we don't want that the government, the Russian government, should be deciding for Volozhin Yeshiva what their curriculum should be, and they shouldn't be uh, forcing any internal decisions onto the Yeshiva uh, heads. Um, or was it the amount of general studies that was required? That's something also we'll get to. I'll give you just as, as an example, one of the other early Yeshivas of that time was the Ramaylis Yeshiva in Vilna, and when the Russian government required them to have a certain amount of general studies, basic Russian language and basic, I think, science or math, whatever it was, so the Romilus Yeshiva agreed to it. We'll have limited general studies. The Russian government will stop bothering us and we'll drop it whenever they're looking the other way and we'll go on with life. And that's exactly what happened. So the question is why by Velazhin Yeshiva wasn't that successful? Why was it that... Why was it that they were so intent on on getting them to completely transform the yeshiva into a, a general studies department, as we'll see? And there must uh, be other factors that went into it uh, as well. So we have to understand that there's um, a few different uh, groups of people who are involved in in knowing what's going on within the walls of the yeshiva. First of all, there's the Russian government, as we said. They want to know. It's a prominent place. It's one of the central places of the Jews. It's like considered the the Harvard University of the Jewish community in Russia. And they want to know what's going on in the yeshiva. They want to monitor it. They're, they legally recognize it, and therefore they have to regulate what happens there. There's also, because again, because of its prominence, the Jewish maskilim are very interested in what goes on in Volashin, and there's a lot of competition. If we go back to what I said about the Russia, the government's involvement in the 1840s and 50s, so that's during the time when what's known as the Haskala Mitam, when the Russian government forces or attempts to force on enlightenment into the Jews of the Russian Empire, and one of the things that they did under the influence of uh, different uh, enlightened Jews, different maskilim, was the opening of the rabbinical seminaries, both in Vilna and in Zhitomir. And Zhitomir is down in the Ukraine, so that's less relevant to our discussion, 
But if we talk about the rabbinical seminary in Vilna, which is not far from Valazhin, so it's a competition, essentially. Because Valazhin is the the place, it has the, it's attracting the best and the brightest, and it's producing the future leaders, genuine rabbinical leaders, authentic, traditional Jewish leaders and rabbis and Rashi Yeshiva. And uh, the, the rabbinical seminary and the maskilim who are backing it rightfully see it as, as a big threat. And therefore they become a lobbying group against the Valajin Yeshiva and they're busy informing on it and the different uh, maskilim or groups of maskilim or in the newspapers or directly to the government in St. Petersburg, they are very involved in in, uh, in being on top of what happens in Valajin and are they doing things legal and are they listening to the regulations and uh, they make sure that everyone in St. Petersburg and in the governor's office in Vilna is kept up to date about what Valajin is doing. Another thing that goes on in the yeshiva is that within the yeshiva, it was never calm, we're talking about a very busy student body with different factions, and there are some, like I said in, in the previous uh, previous installment of this series about the different things that were going on in the yeshiva, and sometimes there were informers, sometimes there were students who were not happy with the with the way yeshiva was treating them, or they were already take, th- taking a different direction in life, and uh, for one reason or another, and sometimes they would inform. Who would they inform to? Very often the Jewish uh, newspapers, Hamelitz, or one of the other newspapers, sometimes even to the Russian Tsarist police or government in the form of letters or, or uh, straight-up informing, and therefore it would be coming from within the yeshiva as well, unfortunately. So they have different ways of, of finding out in, in uh, what's going on to the yeshiva. So then there's this pressure over time to incorporate an element of general studies in the yeshiva, mainly Russian language, um, to a certain extent uh, math and basic sciences, and um, also the, um, uh, at a certain time there was an emphasis on Russian literature, at uh, different times there was different stages, mainly Russian language. Now, from the sources of that time, it seems that there was no real, uh, no one really had an issue with learning and studying the Russian language. In fact, in Zichr and Yaakov, Yaakov Lifshitz, the legendary secretary of Ravitsa Kohan Inspector in Kovna, I don't think anyone could suspect him of having muskelic uh, tendencies because he dedicated his entire career and, and, and good name to fighting a pretty a uh, pretty, um, pretty intense battle against the Haskala and all those winds of change. And he said that as he, he doesn't see that there's any uh, reason and he doesn't see any rabbinic opposition to the knowledge and the study of the Russian language. So there wasn't a problem with the Russian language per se, um, but there was a problem with uh, a, the emphasis of it, or the study of it, or the required study of it within the walls of the yeshiva. You know, you could, something you could do on your own time and go back to your dira at night, to your shtanza, where you stay and study it, if you think it's important, or later on in life, but not within the curriculum of the yeshiva. And also definitely not that the Russian government should be meddling in with their affairs. So there's this back and forth, there's this pressure that goes on, and again, it's over the decades. It starts way before. 
And what happens is, is that the pressure intensifies and it even comes from donors. In the 1880s, it's already pressure from Jewish donors and you have to understand that the financial situation of the Velazhin Yeshiva was dire, uh, terrible debts and, and it was a crushing burden that sat on the Nitzivs, uh by now elderly shoulders and um, and he was under pressure also from donors that there's no reason that these that the Talmidim of the Lajan Yeshiva shouldn't be getting a little bit of basic Russian and other basic general studies, especially since they're becoming the future rabbis of the, Jew, of the Jewish communities in the Russian Empire. And because of the government, and, and, and they have to throw in another, another factor to, the, to this uh, complicated Lajan puzzle, is the fact that the Nitziv is not the only decision maker in the Yeshiva. First of all, like I said, there's a lot of pressure from donors. Second of all, because of the status that Velazhin has, it's considered the yeshiva of the elite yeshiva of the Jews of the Russian Empire. So a lot of the great rabbonim of the age, Rabbi Sikhochan Inspector in Kovna, the Beis Salevi in Brisk, who used to be a rabbi in Velazhin, and others, they feel that they have what to say. They can advise, and they can be part of the decision-making process, especially when it's major fundamental decisions for the future of the yeshiva, and therefore some of the, sometimes these are things are decided at big meetings of, of great rabbis from uh, major cities in Russia that the Nitziv consults with. And then, of course, you have to know that there's the Parnose HaYeshiva, or the Gaboyim of the yeshiva, who sat in Minsk and in Vilna, and they were the ones who organized the yeshiva's fundraising, and they were very much involved in the day-to-day affairs of the yeshiva. There was a group... Uh, pretty much since Reb Chaim Velazhiner's times, um, that passed on from generation to generation, a group of uh, prominent uh, communal activist individuals in Minsk and in Vilna who were very much involved in the yeshiva affairs, and of course they had what to say. I guess in, in modern-day terms we would call it a board. They never called it a board. They called it Parnassim or Gabayim. The different sources say call them different things. And, um, and they have what to say uh, also. Now, in the past, when these, when the, when these, uh, when the issues of closing the yeshiva or or implementing general studies in the yeshiva came up, so very often the time-tested way of solving these issues was bribery, and that caused Russian officials to look the other way. That it, that had been used many times in the past, and it worked, and it always, you know, pushed off the uh, the sentencing or or the implementing the the decision that was taken in St. Petersburg. You have to remember, Valazhin is a small little shtetl far away from St. Petersburg, far away from the 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 you know the communication that it was in those days. It was easy to be able to bribe local officials to look the other way. But things came to a head with pressure mounting, and and eventually the Nitziv uh, caves in, and he allows um, and he allows a limited amount of general studies in the yeshiva under a whole list of conditions. Uh, number one, it was not required, it was optional for the students in Valazhin to take the uh, the secular studies courses. Number two, there was very limited hours, it was, it was almost insignificant, the amount of hours. Number three, it could not be inside the yeshiva building, it was a building nearby, Number four, he did not want it to be Jewish teachers. It had to be non-Jewish Russian teachers. If it was Jewish teachers, then they would already 
be, uh, you know, they would get uh, masculine oriented, they would come with other agendas, and he didn't want that. So he insisted that it be non-Jewish t- teachers, and that might have been another couple of conditions as well. So you can imagine that it wasn't exactly the biggest success story, this uh, having the this uh, secular studies in the Volozhin Yeshiva, but it was there, and there were there were those who chose to take it, and there were jo- those who who participated in it. Um, and this is in, already started the the discussions about it started in 1887, 1888, and it was actually implemented in 1890, uh, two years before the yeshiva was closing. Um, and the czarist officials know that it that it's almost irrelevant because there's not that much uh, really going on. Um, and and the other thing that we have to uh, mention is the yeshiva's financial collapse at this time. Um, the yeshiva's, yeshiva goes into tremendous debt um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, just the overwhelming poverty of the Russian Empire. You have to remember that in the 1880s is the pogroms and then the May laws, which is the economic restrictions um, that the reactionary, after the assassination of Tsar Alexander II and the reactionary policies of Tsar Nikolai II and uh, the great emigration begins from the Russian Empire. There's a tremendous social and economic upheaval by the Jews of Russia, and therefore um, that and other reasons caused the yeshiva to be driven terribly into debt. Um, there's an incredible letter that I say very often on the trips, because it, in this letter we see how Valazhin is the mother of, of, uh, of many of the modern yeshivas today, uh, because the you know, you could substitute Valajan for, you know, Mir, Lakewood, Brisk, and, and a lot of the details of this letter come, become alive, or other yeshivas, not just those three. And there, and there it says in this letter, that it's, it's a letter, first of all, that the Nitziv sends to the newspaper before the newsman begins. And he says there that the yeshiva has no room to accept new guys this month. We're not accepting anyone. He says also, um, that the government, the Russian government, does not allow new guys to come to Volozhin. They already have too many, and they're only allowed a certain number, and the government's also regulating the number of boys who are allowed to attend. He says the yeshiva cannot afford to take in more guys. And he says, don't try coming from a distant place and then showing up here and then saying, I'm here already, so take me in, because we're warning you beforehand already not to come. He specifically says that. And then he adds in another thing. He says, if you think you can get in because you have a lot of money, then don't try that either because um, because we're not going to be accepted. And he says, and don't think of draying around. He says, you think you're going to come and you're going to be in a local-based medrash and you're going to sleep by someone local and you're going to kind of be in Valash. He says, don't try that. Just stay, stay away. No one's getting accepted this coming month. It's an amazing letter. I think the only difference between Valash's letter and and similar letters that might possibly be posted in the newspapers today from yeshivas is that the Nitziv posted sent the letter to a a secular Jewish newspaper, not a religious one, because there were no religious ones in those days. He sent it to Hatzfira, which was a very famous newspaper at the time. In any event, so the Nitziv is 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 suffering from this tremendous financial burden, and he's looking to the future of the yeshiva. And he himself is old and sick, and he needs to have a 
to deal with uh, to to deal with the yeshiva's success in the next generation because he is getting old and sick and he's weak. He can't he can't sustain it. He needs to look for the yeshiva's future. Now, in his mind, the two main concerns is you need someone who's able to deal with the Russian government because they're they're out to destroy the yeshiva, and you need someone who's able to fundraise to get money to cover the yeshiva's debts and to rebuild it and to bring it back onto secure footing. So he brings in his son, Reb Chaim Berlin. Reb Chaim Berlin was, was an aristocrat. He was a prince like his father. He was the rabbi of the wealthy and enlightened and progressive Jewish community in Moscow for a period of time. Um, he had just uh, remarried a second time. His first wife had passed away. And he was a, a a a very impressive individual. He was classy. He knew how to deal with the Balabatim. He knew Russian. He had lived in Moscow, which was a crown city after St. Petersburg. And the Nitziv felt that he's the guy who would know how to deal with the Russian government. And he's the guy who would know how to fundraise and bring the yeshiva back to its success. However, he was an outsider. He wasn't part of the Volozhin establishment, despite the fact that he had learned there, and he was the Nitziv's son, but he was, he was away for a long time, and he was the rabbi of the progressive and modern Jewish community in Moscow. Whereas within the yeshiva, you had one of the most incredible, young, budding Talmud Chachamim and Magid Eshiurim that, that Jewish history had ever seen, Reb Chaim Brisker. Reb Chaim Soloveitchik, who was married to the Nitziv's granddaughter, had a few years earlier become been appointed as an assistant Rosh Yeshiva in the Yeshiva, and he was electrifying the Yeshiva world. His new derech halimut, his new style of learning, his style of thinking, his analytics, his genius, his charisma, his he he was brilliant, and he and he was a father to his talmidim. They loved him, and he cared for them, and he loved them. And not only were they close to him, but it was it was it was about his learning, his style, and it was exciting, and it was bringing the best and the brightest. It always brought the best and the brightest Velazhin, but especially now, everyone was excited about Reb Chaim and his new way of learning. And here you have within the yeshiva, the assistant yeshiva is he is it. He is the next generation's superstar. And here you're bringing in an outsider to be the Rashiva. Well, Reb Chaim Brisker, his style, he was a very simple person. Um, in, in his, he was, he was a, he, he, he glorified in his simplicity that he's someone who lives in the basement of the yeshiva and lives for the guys. And he, you know, did, wasn't that, uh, wasn't that interested in, in, uh, in fundraising or diplomacy or, or nice style dress to look good for the Balabatim, that wasn't part of his world. And then Nitziv felt that Reb Chaim Brisker would probably not be the best fundraiser, and probably not be the ideal candidate to deal with the Russian government. Reb Chaim Brisker didn't speak the most fluent Russian, and and he felt that his son Reb Chaim Berlin would do a better job at what the yeshiva needs. But a lot of the Talmidim of Reb Chaim Brisker said, hey, 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 you can't do that. That's an affront to the respect that Reb Chaim Brisker deserves. He should be the one to be appointed the Rosh Hashiva. And they revolted against the Nitziv's decision. They were not happy that he was bringing in Reb Chaim Berlin. And it went out to a full rebellion. Reb Chaim Brisker himself uh, maintained a neutral stance. He did not 
get directly involved. He definitely did not initiate it, and he did not openly support it, but he did not openly stop them either. Um, so you have this this whole, you know, uh, uh, rebelliousness, and this causes a big upheaval in yeshiva between the ones who supported the Nitziv's decision and Reb Chaim Berlin and the ones who tried to force Reb Chaim Berlin out and went against the Nitziv itself. It got pretty violent, it got a bit dirty, and it wasn't that great for the yeshiva. The yeshiva fell into full anarchy. We could say there was... It went from peaceful protests to outright rioting. Uh, we use that analogy, and uh, and it was and it was anarchy in the yeshiva. Now, if we take all the context that we've set up until this time, there are some ears that are listening to every single peep that goes on in Velazhin yeshiva, and those ears are called the Russian police. And today we know because of Shol, Professor Shol Stemfer, we know that. They were keeping a close watch, and there was even letters sent from disgruntled and angry Talmudim within the yeshiva telling the Russian government exactly what was going on, and and uh, and 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 they weren't happy. They weren't happy because if there's anarchy in the yeshiva, that means the Berlins, the Nitziv, lost control of the yeshiva. You have to remember that in the atmosphere of the 1890s, the Russian Tsarist government was terrified of revolts. They were terrified of revolutionaries. They were terrified of anyone. Remember that Tsar Alexander was assassinated, and right around the corner is the is the revolutions of the early 1900s, and culminated in the 1905 failed revolution. So we're in a very tumultuous time. And where is it the most vulnerable place for revolutionaries to to flourish? By the youth, by the brilliant, by the smart youth in the universities which is always like that. That's where it always was, the student protests, and that's where the Russian police always had the biggest uh, suspicions of. And Volozhin is the Jewish university. And if it, as long as the Nitziv is in charge, as long as he has someone who's going to take over after he dies, then they're not worried about Volozhin. They know it's under control. But if they're revolting against their own rabbis, and the Nitziv lost control of the yeshiva, we have the actual police report that says that the Rabbi Berlin, both senior and junior, no longer have control of the yeshiva. The yeshiva is complete anarchy, and therefore it has to be closed. And the Russian government comes to the decision to close the yeshiva as a result of this machleik, this dispute, and the ensuing turmoil that it caused, and therefore they came in to close the yeshiva. Now what was the means at their disposal? What was the pretext? They had a very easy pretext, because they had been the entire time they had been pressuring the yeshiva to implement uh, secular studies. So here they just simply introduced draconian measures that they had never said to any other yeshiva, never said it to Ramilas or Tamir or to any other place. But here it was just a way to know because they knew that the Nitziv would never be able to uh, sustain it. What do they, what do they tell the Lelajan that they have to do? They said the yeshiva from now on can only be open nine hours a day. And the yeshiva, during those nine hours, they can't learn Gemara or any Jewish subjects for more than four hours during the day. The yeshiva has to be locked at night, and anyone who's teaching in the yeshiva, including the Gemara teachers, they have to be licensed by the Russian government, excuse me, and have a degree, have a, an educational degree that they finished 
a certain amount of in the Russian education system that they're licensed to teach. So, you know, given those conditions, that was obviously conditions that it wasn't just, it's not, that's not called introducing secular studies to yeshiva, that's called closing it down. To say that Velazhin, which had, had the, the sound of Torah study 24 hours a day in yeshiva, and to say they're only allowed to be open nine hours, and most of those hours have to be devoted to secular subjects, and even the couple hours a day that they can be studying Gemara has to be done by teachers who are licensed by the Russian government, was just completely, it was saying that the yeshiva is not going to be functioning as yeshiva anymore. So the Nitziv completely ignored it. It was, it was a ludicrous uh, uh, request or decree. And he, since he ignored it, so the, the czarist police came down in a very tragic and sad uh, cold winter day, the week of Parshas Bay, and we know it was the week of Parshas Bay because the Nitziv wrote a letter. He wrote a letter to the Gabayim in Minsk and Vilna to explain to them what happened. And he said it's the week of, that it says in the Parsha of, of Bay, Kola Goresh Yegoresh Mikem, that you're being chased out of here. We're chased out of Alajan. They sealed, uh, the Tsarist the police sealed seal the door. They closed down the yeshiva. It was a tragic day. It was sad. The procession of taking out the Sfarim and the Sifrei Torah. There were people crying. It was a it was a day of mourning. It was like the Beis Hamikdash was getting destroyed. One of the most tragic days in the history of the Jews in the Russian Empire, and it reverberated through the towns and shtetls and cities of the Russian Empire, and and uh, just an absolute uh, tragedy. The Reb Chaim and the Nitziv were not allowed to live in the Vilna district for the next three years. Reb Chaim goes to his father, the Beis Halevi, in Brisk. Mesalevi passes on shortly after, and Reb Chaim Briska was there, so he became the rabbi in Brisk. The Nitziv goes on to fundraise for the now defunct yeshiva, but he has all these debts. Reb Chaim Berlin said that the debts ran into tens of thousands of rubles. And the Nitziv first goes to Minsk, and then he goes to Pinsk. He stayed by his nephew, uh, the uh, Reb Baruch Epstein, the Torah Tamima, when he was in Pinsk. And then he moved on to Warsaw, where there was many wealthy Jews, and he planned on actually coming to Eretz Yisrael, living out his later years in Eretz Yisrael, and maybe even trying to reopen Valazhin in, uh, in Eretz Yisrael, but he did not make it. He essentially never recovered from the closing of the yeshiva, and he died of a broken heart in, um, in uh, Warsaw. And that's why he's buried in the Warsaw Jewish Cemetery. Um, in uh, When we go on the trips, we always end up in by his uh, cemetery in Warsaw. In, if we, not, not very often do we go to Valazhin. When we do, um, we, we go to Reb Chaim Valazhin's cover, but the Nitziv himself is in, um, is in Warsaw. So it, we, we move on to a lesser known part of the story, which is the reopening of the Valazhin Yeshiva, which is an interesting story because there is several attempts afterwards to, to reopen. Um, and uh, and none of them were very successful, um, but there was but there was there there, there were these attempts. Uh, first, the first attempt was right after it closed, a couple of years before the yeshiva closed. There was a kailal that opened up in Valazhin. The kailal was funded by the sugar magnate, one of the richest, not only richest Jews in the Russian Empire, one of the richest people in the Russian Empire. 
Yisrael Bratsky um, from Kiev. He had a license to live in Kiev, and he was uh, he 25% of all the sugar trade in the Russian Empire went through Bratsky, and later his son and grandson. It was a family business that went on for a while. When we go down to Kiev, so today today you have the the main, there's a Chabad shul in the old Bratsky shul, and Mendy's, a fantastic restaurant, is in the same building as the Brodsky shul, and it's a beautiful, magnificent shul, and a lot of history. And that was what, that was what, it was called the Brodsky shul, because he stole Brodsky Davin there, and he built the shul. Either way, so he funded this kyle, which was for ten married fellows to train for the rabbinate, and it was officially unaffiliated with the Valajan Yeshiva. It was just in Valajan, it was nearby. And here a bunch of Talmudim of the Valashin Yeshiva, after the Yeshiva closed down, they like join up with the Bratsky Kyle surreptitiously as if they're just joining the Kyle, and that was the nucleus of how the Valashin Yeshiva was to reopen. In 1899, which was only seven years later, Rabbi Fol Shapiro, who had, was the son-in-law of the Nitziv and had previously been a Rebbe in, uh, in Valashin, had left to get the rabbinate in, in, uh, in another city. He comes back to Valashin and he reopens the yeshiva on a smaller scale. The watchful eyes of the czarist officials, he's still being careful, but he opens, he reopens the yeshiva. And it's small, it did not really take off, did have some successful Talmudim during those days, Rabari Levin actually uh, learned there during that time. There are some other impressive individuals who learned in Valajan after the reopening, but it was under Rafael Shapiro's jurisdiction. It remained smaller, and it never reached the glory days of um, of what it had been uh, before it closed down. That's stage number one. What happens is, is World War One happens. And like most yeshivas in Lita, in Russia, during World War One, it closed down. Almost all yeshivas closed down. A few went into exile and barely managed to survive, and another few... Uh, weren't touched by miracle. Tells Lutsk, another story, and uh, we mentioned it in our World War One series. But Volazhin closes down. Rafael Shapiro himself makes it to Minsk, where he passes away a couple of years after the end of the war. Volazhin ends up in the borders of new and independent Poland after World War One, which means that it's not in the Russian Empire, and it, which doesn't exist anymore. It's not in Russia. It's in independent Poland where there's freedom of religion, where Volazhin can open. And not only that, but 1921 is the centennial of the passing of Reb Chaim Volazhiner. By the way, I just mentioned that it was the yard site of Reb Chaim Volazhiner the other day. That's the 199th yard site. So you're talking about that next year is the bicentennial of Reb Chaim Volazhiner's yard site. And the same way that in 1921, they used his centennial as a reason that Valash and Yeshiva should reopen. So you heard it here first. Look out for some sort of um, event going on next year. I'm sure that someone will decide that, they, that we need to reopen Valash and Yeshiva next year because of the bicentennial of Reb Chaim passing. So either way, they decide uh, there's a Vad that's set up in Vilna, in 1921, in honor of the centennial of Reb Chaim Valazhin's yard, said we have to reopen Valazhin. In the meantime, Reb Shapiro had passed away. Now, this Vad wanted to appoint Reb Moshe Soloveitchik, the, the, one of the older children of Reb Chaim Brisker, who had been the Rashiv in Valazhin, to become 
the Rashiva, the new, newly opened for the third time, the uh, of Alajan Yeshiva. Now, the a lot of the Rabbonim on this Vad and Vilna were affiliated with the Mizrahi, or Shmuel Fried, or Mayor Barilan, um, who, who you know was part of the Beisarav, part of the family of the Nitziv and the Valajan, and they they pushed for the candidacy of Ramesh Salavechik. But as it happens, Rabbi Shapiro had a son, Rabbi Yankov Shapiro. And he wanted to become the Rosh Hashiva. And he actually goes down to Velazh and he starts to clean up the building. He tries to get support to start the yeshiva. And it became a bit of a dispute before the yeshiva even opened about who would be the Rosh Hashiva. And eventually Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro wins. Or Moshe Soloveitchik moves on and moves to Warsaw and then to the United States. And Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro reopens Velazh with a lot of pomp and ceremony for the third time. And... It's already a different yeshiva. It's quite small. It's only about 40, 50, and I think it peaked at 70, 80. And he tries to uh, innovate to try to make the yeshiva more popular. And he makes the incredible move, just to show that it's not the original Valajan anymore. He brings Musser into the yeshiva. We know that Valajan yeshiva was not the ultimate non-Musser yeshiva in here. They bring in Musser, Yitzhak Weinstein becomes a mashgiach, and he gives shemuzin, and there's a Musser Seder every day in yeshiva, and it becomes a classic Lithuanian yeshiva of the interwar period, and uh, nothing like the Valajan of, uh, of the original time. So the it was part of the Vada Yeshiva's network, but it never remained uh, anything major. It was small, and financially it was unstable, until it eventually closed um, by the war and the Holocaust, of course, like uh, like all the other yeshivas. Interestingly enough, as they to close up the the story, um, Ramichal Yehuda Lefkovich, who was a great great uh, tzaddik and Talmud Chacham and personality who lived here in Bnei Brak until a few years ago, he passed away at a very old age. He was ninety seven years old, so he grew up in Valajan. In fact, when we go to Valajan, the Beis Akvaris there. We've, there's, we see his cover, his father, excuse me, not his, his father's, his father's cover, his father's tombstone is there, it's been refurbished, they found the original one and they refurbished it, and something Lefkovich, I forgot his first name, um, is right before Chaim Velazhin's cover, there's this Remichel Yehuda's father, and Remichel Yehuda used to tell, talk about when he grew up as a child in Velazhin before the war, uh, by the way, he wasn't the only famous person to come from Velazhin, Irving Bunim, the great uh, Askin activist in the United States also grew up in Valajan. When he was 10 years old, he moved to America. And um, maybe maybe that's one of the reasons Rabbi Cutler and all the other G'daylam in America liked him so much, because he was a Valajan, or he, you know, he never learned there, but he grew up in the town. But either way, Remichel Yehuda uh, uh, lived in Valajan. He would talk about, he remembered the yeshiva building, and he remembered the reopened yeshiva there, that it was a yeshiva. He remembered the uh, Valajan, one of the only people in the world who remembered the Valajan yeshiva functioning. Now, when the Valajan yeshiva originally closed down in 1892, the main closing of the of the yeshiva in its glory, so there was a big competition amongst the other yeshivas that had already opened up in Europe, in Lita, in the Russian Empire, about who's taking over Valajan. Now who's the top? And this is this was a movement that had been started by Reb Chaim Velazhin, that was his vision, that there would be an entire movement of yeshivas. And the fact that there's a bunch of different yeshivas competing for the crown is probably the biggest testimony as to the success of that vision, as to what Velazhin was able to produce 
the aristocracy of Torah, the glory of Torah, and the fact that tells Yeshiva how to Purim spiel the year after Velazhin closed, in which the passing of the torch was given over to Tells, and then Slabatka they didn't like that, and Slabatka they felt that they were the ones who took over. And of course, in the mirror that had played second fiddle to Velazhin for so long, so they felt that their, their yeshiva should be the one that takes over Velazhin. And in the meantime, Reb Zalman Sender Kahana Shapiro, he starts the yeshiva in Malch a couple of years after Velazhin closed down, and he calls it Eitz Chaim, named after Velazhin, because his yeshiva is going to be the one to take over Velazhin. And there's this amazing competition going on because Valajan already had passed beyond the confines of those walls that we see when we go visit the yeshiva, and it was already it already came to mean uh, the name came to mean something much greater and symbolized something much greater uh, and throughout the Jewish world. So this was a series on the Valajan yeshiva and the beginning of the yeshiva movement, and this is Yehuda Geber. Uh, this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeberer.com. Geber is G-E-B-E-R-E-R. You could subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. And you can be in touch with me for questions, comments, sources, tours and trips and sponsorships um, for any um, an episode or podcast and and uh, follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.